0: Luke 5 and verses 1 to 16, we'll read the first section, which is verses 1 to 11. Now, it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men." And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Our Heavenly Father, we know that we read about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we read his word, we read about the truth, and we pray that you'll open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. May we study these words, not as the words of mere men, but as the words of the living God, and teach us what these words have to do with our Christian life. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the multitudes are still around Christ, and they are following Him from place to place. As it says in verse 1, that they were pressing around Him. They were pressing around Him, and presumably this is the reason why He gets into the boat, so He can have some distance from them and be able to address them. It also says in verse 1 that they were listening to the Word of God. The Word of God. What Jesus taught was the Word of God. Luke says this as the inspired uh, author of this book. He says that Jesus was preaching the Word of God. Jesus' words, though He was a human, were not mere human words. They were the words of God. And that's the way we ought to look at it. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. We're not looking at just some enlightened teacher. We're not looking at Christ as someone who is uh, perhaps a guru or some kind of... um, master of a of a certain religion or a cult leader or anything like that, when Jesus preached, he preached the word of God, and we know from first peter one ten to twelve and also from second peter one sixteen to twenty one that whenever the prophets and the apostles spoke and wrote, they wrote the Word of God by the Holy Spirit, so they are listening to this word now. It doesn't necessarily mean that the multitudes were very happy with everything Jesus said, because we know how fickle the multitudes can be, and eventually, when Jesus is arrested and uh, on trial, they say, "Crucify him and crucify him." At least some of them do, and some of the ones that were listening to him and following him. It says he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This lake is also called a sea usually if it's called a sea it's called the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Galilee because of the region where it was and the lake of Gennesaret because Gennesaret was a city on the edge of the lake and so it has different names in the Bible it also is known as the Sea of Tiberius or the Lake of Tiberius because in the Roman era it was renamed uh, to that all three of these designations Sea of Galilee uh, Lake of Gennesaret or Sea of Tiberius, or Lake of tiberius All of these are talking about the same area, that same body of water, which was about 16 miles long and about 6 miles uh, wide. That's the, about how uh, it was. And there were cities uh, along the edge of it, cities such as Capernaum and other ones that are more commonly known. And it was perhaps that he was at Capernaum, Because this is where Simon Peter lived and he likely went into Simon Peter's house because it says uh, right there in verse 38, uh, in chapter 4, verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. And uh, likely Simon's home was in Capernaum, which was also on the edge of this lake or sea. And it's no surprise because Simon is familiar with that lake and he's a fisherman just like his companions are. In verse 2, And he, Jesus, he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He sees two boats. He chooses one. He chooses Simon's boat. It doesn't tell us why he chose Simon's, but Simon Peter, and sometimes he's known as Peter, and sometimes he's known as Simon, and sometimes he's known as Simon Peter. This is the same individual. And here... He gets into Simon's, and it may be, as we see in, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Simon seems to be the, the main uh, head or the, the speaker of the group. He's the one that is often queried, and he's often the one that gives an answer, and sometimes his answer is what everybody else is thinking, too. Not because he's a rash person. Some people have attributed that to him. I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it has something to do with him being the, the leader of the group uh, of the 12. And that's why he focuses his attention on Simon here. Verse 3. Now, this is before they are made apostles. So Jesus is um, bringing him into this fold of 12 disciples or 12 apostles at this point. That's the point of this narrative. And we will see that Simon has to first come to a realization of his sin before he can be called to the ministry. A realization of his sin before he goes and preaches to other people about their sin. We'll see what what happens here. Verse 3, he got into Simon's boat and asked him to put out a little way from the land. This way, if he's out a little bit from the land, then the people won't be tempted to come and And hover around Jesus and be too close to him. That would be one reason. But another reason would be so that he could uh, address them all, and they could all see him. If they're in the, if he's in the boat, then the crowds on the on the edge of the lake they can see him and hear him teach. And that's what happens in verse three. He sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. Presumably, the multitudes are standing, and he is sitting. This too, sometimes this little phrase, and he sat down, has to do with the customary way of teaching, that is to have people encircling you, and you sitting there, and them standing and listening to you. This was a custom uh, of the day to do it that way. Then verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, so he preaches to the multitudes, and now he's talking to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. This is Jesus confirming his words by his works, confirming his message by his miracles. That's what he's about to do, to give to the people indisputable proof that what he just preached is what they should believe because he's the Son of God. So he tests Simon. Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. So Simon is given this command and Simon does so. Verse uh, five. However, he has a bit of uh, an explanation. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. It doesn't tell us why Simon says this. I don't think Simon is saying this because he's skeptical. I think he's saying this in order to emphasize the fact that this is the situation, but I'm going to do whatever you say. Simon has already heard and perhaps even seen some of the miracles Jesus did in chapter four. He's already heard of all, all that. So I don't think it's beyond Simon to understand that Jesus can and uh, can do a miracle if he so chooses to do a miracle. He just explains. And notice verse five. He calls him master. So he knows that he is uh, an, an author, uh, authoritative teacher who deserves to be obeyed and followed. He calls him by that name. And he explains, as is natural, that he worked hard all night and caught nothing. Often, fishermen don't catch anything. Quite often, they don't catch anything. But they went at a time when they would be most likely to catch. And that would be at night to catch. But they didn't catch any that time. But then he says, At your bidding, I will let down the nets. He knows of his circumstance. He knows of the hard situation he just experienced all night long. And after all, Simon and his brother Andrew and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, they are experts. That's that's their livelihood. So he is willing to submit and to uh, acknowledge that what he could not do, though it's his field of expertise, he says, Jesus, I'll do whatever you tell me. At your bidding, I will let down the nets. This is evidence of Simon's faith, Simon's humility, Simon's willingness to obey whatever Jesus tells him to do, even though Simon is an expert in this field. Verse 6 And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. When they did this, a great quantity of fish, and their nets are breaking and tearing. This is how much Jesus instantly performed a miracle. They let him down, and then they're pulling him up, and a huge quantity is coming up. And verse 7, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat, that is, James and John and whoever else they had in the other boat, signaled to them for them to come and help them. And they do. Verse 7, they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. This has to be a miracle. This doesn't happen naturally. These details are given to us to show that instantly and tremendously this happened. This does not happen typically. It doesn't happen that you are unsuccessful the whole night. Now it's morning time. And then you put it down at the very time that Jesus tells you to put down the nets. Then you catch it and are successful. And so successful... That both of your boats, both of your boats are about to sink and the nets are breaking. This is a miracle. And Luke clearly is describing this as a miracle of God. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He just experienced the miraculous power of Christ. Christ is no mere man. Showing his miraculous power, and when he thinks of Christ's miraculous power and knows that he is Lord, as he calls him in verse 8, and Master, as he calls him in verse 5, this shows that Peter was thankful that Christ used his power to help him. He's showing his thankfulness, and when he properly understands that Christ has used his power. To help Peter, Peter realizes his own unworthiness. Thankfulness produces a sense of unworthiness or it reminds us of our unworthiness. We thank God when we see God's power at work in us and then that should produce thankfulness and also remind us of our unworthiness. And this is why he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now he's not saying this in a rude way. He's he's saying this in a humble way. He says, I don't deserve to be around you, Lord. I'm so sinful. I don't deserve to be around you. So you go and you go to some holy place because I am filthy and and unworthy. I am as, as filthy and smelly as these fish I just caught. That's what he's thinking of himself. He's thinking of himself like that, which is the way we ought to think. Moses did this at the burning bush. When he realized who was there at the burning bush, he hid his face Isaiah did this when he saw, uh, that was Exodus 3. And in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord, he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the feeling that Isaiah had. And all true people of faith, when they have a glimpse of the miraculous glory of God, they have to be thankful and they have to be humble they realize that they are nothing and god is everything he is holy and we are sinful verse 9 peter apparently was the only one who fell at jesus feet but he wasn't the only one surprised and and full of amazement verse 9 for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken he's not the only one who's amazed And realizing what is going on. But apparently he's the only one that falls at Jesus' feet. Not to say that the others did wrong, necessarily. They just didn't do as good as Simon Peter did. Everybody likes to pick on Peter. Peter being a loud mouth, being rash with his mouth. But several times he is the one who does what the others won't do. Like this is one case. He's the one who fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me. Verse 10. He names a a couple of others. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. That is, his companions do this, all of his companions, and the two sons of Zebedee, they are also full of amazement and realize what a miracle has occurred. These two, James and John, these are the two who are... Eventually, in this passage as well, becoming apostles. these two will also become apostles. The list of apostles is given to us in Matthew 10:1 to4, the names of the 12 apostles. and there we will see James and John, these two, along with Peter and Andrew. Four out of the 12, they will be also named in Matthew 10:1 to4. And this John, John the son of Zebedee, he is more known than James. John the son of Zebedee is the one who wrote the book of John, who wrote First, Second, and Third John, and the, the book of Revelation. This John the son of Zebedee wrote those books. Um, and then, in the case of, um, in the case of James, James. Was put to death in Acts chapter 12, Acts 12, verse 2. I'll read verses 1 and 2. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. He had him put to death with the sword. So, this is the James and John we know here. So then, this amazement happens this worship happens and this acknowledgement of who Christ is and Jesus responds to this in verse 10 Jesus said to Simon do not fear from now on you will be catching men peter was struck with the glory of god in verse 8 and he says Jesus says to Peter Simon Peter do not fear Yes, Moses was spared death even though God was in his presence. Uh, Isaiah was spared death though God was in his presence. And God comforted both of them And, and several other examples throughout the Old Testament. And that's why here Jesus says to Peter, do not fear. Do not fear, everything's okay. So when proper fear of God happens and even terror, then God comforts those who properly respond to his glory. He comforts them and says, do not fear. There's no need to be afraid of anything. And now, from now on, you will be catching men. I just showed you by this catch of fish that I have the power to take fish out from this lake and put them in the net and into your boat. And I also have the power to make you into a fisher of men. You have, I am now commissioning you to help me in this special task as an apostle. All Christians, in a sense, uh, fish after men. All Christians do that. All Christians evangelize. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 in the Great Commission. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. He called us out of, his dark, uh, out of darkness into his marvelous light in order that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who did that. So we are all supposed to do that but in the special sense here he's being called as an apostle he did not say i want to be an apostle jesus and he he did not it was not by vote or anything like that jesus himself chose simon peter jesus called him peter andrew and all the rest of the apostles so it was not by his desire to have fame or anything like that it was his desire to follow Jesus and Jesus, uh, Jesus knew that and this is why he now calls Simon into this ministry in verse 11 and when they had brought their boats to land they left everything and followed him they knew what he meant by this from now on you'll be catching men and it was not only Simon Peter but Andrew his brother who was a, also a fisherman and the same with James and John so their call is happening right here. Now, a few points of clarification and explanation. One, I don't believe that this is the conversion of Peter and Andrew, James, and John. I think from John chapter 1, we know that they were following the ministry of John the Baptist, who was saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And they did encounter Jesus in John one. 1- Chapter 1, when John the Baptist was preaching, they came and followed him and listened to him, and they were talking about who he was, um, the Messiah, we have found the Messiah, they say that. So they know who he is, and they already believe in him. This is a call to ministry. This This incident happened as preparatory for their call to ministry. And we'll also see later in this chapter in verse... 27 27 and 28, that Matthew will also receive a call to ministry. This would not be his conversion in Luke 5, 27 and 28, but it would be Matthew or Levi's call to ministry. Another point of clarification. Some people think that since Simon and Andrew, James and John, were lowly fishermen, uneducated unskilled not trained in the schools of the rabbis they they did not have a lot of book knowledge that therefore it's unnecessary for today's pastors to have book knowledge we merely and simply depend on the holy spirit they say it's a it's a pseudo spirituality it's a false spirituality they they're just going to depend on the holy spirit and whatever the holy spirit says and sometimes literally a minute before sermon time in the service and even during the sermon time they just spout whatever comes to their mind. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that and it's contrary even to this apostolic ministry. For example, Paul the Apostle was trained by the most famous rabbi of the first century named Gamaliel. He was trained by that rabbi and Paul was used by God to be an apostle, an apostle of Christ trained by the most reputable and revered rabbi of the day. He he says this in Acts 22, verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And Gamaliel was a rabbi who taught Paul many, many things that he knew about the Bible. He did not necessarily know everything correctly, and it took him time to believe in Jesus of Nazareth, but he did understand many things, and he was well trained as an academic, as a scholar. Also, from Acts 7 and Hebrews 11, we know Moses. He was well educated in the court of Pharaoh. He was well educated, and God used that education in Moses' ministry to the people of God. So we cannot take from this passage or any similar passage uh, a false notion that it, there's no need to study the Bible and no need to study it carefully before we stand up and speak before people or even convey it however we want to convey it. We can't just uh, have a pseudo baptism and say, well, the Holy Spirit will tell me and I don't need to study anything. Yes, the Holy Spirit can and will miraculously do things like that. In fact, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Don't fear when you are dragged before rulers and governors and kings and they are interrogating you. Don't fear for the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that hour. But that's an unusual situation. That's a situation where you don't have time necessarily to, to prepare what the governor is going to ask you So when you don't have that, of course the Holy Spirit will help you. But when you do have time, study the Word of God. Whether you are pastor or parishioner, study the Word of God and be prepared to explain it to other people. Uh, Another thing I think we can learn from this is God takes people from menial and lowly occupations in order to show His glory. He show, get, takes people from those kinds of uh, stations and occupations in life in order to show proud people that they should not be so proud. 1 Corinthians 1.26 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen... The foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God, but by His doing. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God reverses the roles. Today, people might be rich. Today, people might be wise, worldly wise. Today, people might have notoriety and fame. But on the day of judgment, it'll be the opposite. Because God is in the business of making no man boast before God. 1 Corinthians 1.29. No one should boast. And then we, whoever, uh, we who uh, all are lowly, then God makes us realize that we were nothing and we were made something by the grace of God. We are made something only by the grace of God. And... And then furthermore, from this passage, some people think when it says they left everything and followed him in verse 11, Luke 5, 11, that necessarily the dedicated Christian is one who leaves everything behind and follows Christ. This is what some have turned into monasticism. Monasticism, that is, you leave the city And you go into a monastery far, far away, away from civilization, and you pretend to be doing God's will by praying all day, reading the Bible all day. Presumably that's what they say. Now, a few of them do that, but many of them go crazy out there. And many of them do all kinds of wickedness out there that they don't tell us. So this monastic kind of mentality is wrong. But also, uh, some people think that even if they don't do it in that monastic sense, they think that living an austere life now, an ascetic or austere life now, is somehow more worthy and uh, is worthy of granting the favor of God than just being simple and being content with what you have. You see, there are two extremes. There are some who want to get rich quick, there are some who love their money and their money is their master. But on the other hand, there are others who think that the more they give up, then they are somehow earning favor with God and pleasing God. I'm going to show how dedicated I am because I'm going to drop everything now and I'm going to go halfway around the world and I'm going to do this and that. And they do many foolish things halfway around the world. They're ill qualified. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're saying. They put themselves in dangerous circumstances and... Uh, Men and women do this, especially young women do this. Young women, somehow, they just brazenly go, drop everything and go halfway around the world without any kind of help, without any kind of protection, and they are in dire circumstances. This is also wrong. This is not what the passage is teaching. The passage is saying that this is what they did, but there is no hint that Peter abandoned his wife. How could the Bible even teach that? that Peter, even though he was one of the apostles, we know he was married because it says in Luke 4, 38, that Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and she was healed by Christ. So there's no way he abandoned his wife and went and followed Jesus everywhere. Somehow, some way, they were working together in the ministry to support Christ in the ministry as as an uh, an apostle and the, the wife of an apostle. In fact, doesn't it say in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, speaking of his rights as a minister, he says, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, 9, 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? All these men in the ministry took along their wife in the ministry. So, Living an austere ascetic life beating yourself on the back or beating yourself on the breast and then kind of making a display of it to everybody look what I've done is also sinful. With food and covering with these we shall be content. Yes, God may ask one of us to give up more than another but we shouldn't go beyond the boundaries of scripture. Have sobriety in in what God expects of us. All right, now, the next passage is verses 12 to 16. 12 to 16, here he will hear uh, heal a leper. And it came about that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him and Uh, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Here is a leper. In verse 12, it says, In one of the cities, probably also one of the cities near that area in Galilee and the Sea of Galilee, it says that there was a man full of leprosy. This must have been from head to toe. It must have impacted every part of his life. It must have made him someone who was quarantined and isolated and somebody who did not have the regular enjoyments and pleasures and privileges of life. He didn't have anything like that. Leprosy is described in detail and the resolution to it or the examination of it and if there is a cleansing of it, the sacrificial resolution to it, these are explained in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Leviticus 13 and 14. So it was a known disease and it was a common enough disease that God addressed it in the book of Leviticus. It says, he fell on his face and implored him. Obviously, he understands and has heard about Jesus. He understands some things about Jesus and he has heard about Jesus. And he knows that Jesus has the miraculous ability to heal him. He knows all those things. This is why he falls on his face correctly and implores him. He's not coming with arrogance. He's not coming with a show. He's not coming with a big uh, uh, retinue of, of people or whatever. He's not coming with clamor. He's coming in humility. He's coming. He falls on his face and he implores Christ. He begs Christ. He knows what Christ is able to do. So he pleads with Christ by this. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean calls him Lord and knows that Jesus must be willing. He shows faith by his actions, but he also knows that his faith has to be coupled with the Lord's will. It's not an an automatic that faith is going to make him well. It has to do with the Lord's will. So he comes with humility and he comes knowing that this condition must be met. The Lord must be willing to do it. And that God, Christ specifically here, you can make me clean. I know you have the ability to make me clean. To take this leprosy away so that I have flesh like the flesh of a child. Like it happened to Naaman. Naaman in Second Kings 5, he had leprosy as well. He dipped seven times in the Jordan River at the command of Elisha. And then his uh, his skin was restored like the flesh of a child, like a newborn child. Soft, supple, and healthy. So this is the way Naaman experienced it, and this is what Jesus is about to do here. Verse 13, he stretched out his hand and touched him. Now doing so, he does so because he's showing compassion and concern for him. He's showing that he wants to identify with this man. He's identifying with his uncleanness and saying, though you have this uncleanness, it's not as though you are forsaken by God. God loves you. He has concern for you. He sees your faith, and I am demonstrating this, and I am going to heal you. I am willing. Be cleansed. Jesus knew that was the condition, so Jesus announces that condition and says, I am willing. Be cleansed. So the statement and then the command, be cleansed. And the miracle occurs. Immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately. There are people around, most likely. There are people around. And Jesus heals him instantly. Can you imagine? We don't know how old he was, but suffering like that for years and years, and then suddenly you know what it means to have health? Suddenly. Suddenly. So, Jesus instructs him in verse 14. He ordered him to tell no one. He ordered him to tell no one, probably just like it is frequently said in John, for his hour had not yet come. And it wasn't time for Jesus to have the multitudes and even the religious authorities be against him and then put him on the cross. It wasn't time yet. As well, in John 6, 15, it says that the crowds, when they were filled with the loaves and the fish, the 5,000, they came and tried to take him by force to make him king. They even had political motives, not spiritual motives, but political motives, merely political motives. They didn't care about spiritual things. They just wanted them to be freed from the Romans and have this Jewish king who was popular be their king. This is why he orders him to tell no one. He knows that the situation is volatile, so he's trying to prevent any problems. And instead, what should he do? Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded for a testimony to them. He commands him to do what the law told him to do, the law of Moses. Leviticus 13 and 14, when a leper was cleansed, he was supposed to, in thanksgiving, offer a sacrifice to God. He offers a sacrifice to God in thanksgiving to show that he acknowledges that God is the one who delivered him from the leprosy. And when he does so, then it's a testimony to them. Testimony to the priests. Testimony to the Levites and everybody else who hears of that. But a testimony in the right way. In a thankful way. Not in a political way, but in a thankful way. It's a testimony to them. However, the news about him was spreading even farther. It doesn't say that this man was the one doing it. It just says that the news was spreading farther and farther. And great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Many people came. Crowds came, so much so that he would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. He didn't have any peace and quiet at times, so he would have to go to the wilderness, to a deserted area, to be able to pray, which teaches us the same. It teaches us that though it is good and right to do ministry, it's good and right to be busy about good and right things, we still need to be separate from all that And away from people long enough to commune with our Heavenly Father. We have to do that. If we're not doing that, then there's imbalance. He's he's not spending all of his time in prayer like the monks do. He's not doing that. But he's also not so busy with his life every day, 24-7, that he has no time to pray, to be alone with God. He's doing both in the proper balance and teaches us to do the same. Okay, now, we have to note a a couple of things and emphasize them. One, as it says in verse 12 12 and 13, the man, the, the leper knows that it has to be according to Christ's will. It has to be according to Christ's will. Let's confirm this and then speak of why this is important. James chapter... 4 James chapter 4 verse 13 Is it right and good to request of God based on God's will or should we just say I want it, I need it, I I, I ask you God, I have faith, therefore it must happen? James 4:13 Come now you who say Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin." James clearly tells us that we cannot make assertions without consulting the will of God. And verse 14 says, we don't know what our life will be like tomorrow. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We vanish. And verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Yes, Yes, it's good and right to go here and there to engage in business and make a profit. We need to eat, our families need to eat, that's right. A profit needs to be made, but the profit needs to be made according to the will of God. And when people do not consult God, that's when the sin occurs. If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. So both health, the ability to live, and wealth, to do this and that, happen according to the will of God. And when people do not conduct themselves this way, he says, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And verse 17, we know what's right, and when we don't do it, it is sin. He calls it boasting, arrogance, evil, and sin when we do not consult the will of God. 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. We can have confidence before God if we ask anything according to His will. He hears us and we'll have our requests if God wills we will have our requests. This is important because people today, many people today think if they conjure up enough faith, enough positive thoughts, enough positive words, positive confession, if they just assert something, it's going to happen. If they just have faith in their faith, faith in their words, faith in the positivity of the things that they say, then it'll happen. And they Say it as though God is obligated to answer the prayers according to those whims. God's not obligated. God is not obligated at all. What they're teaching is contrary to Luke 5, James 4, 1 John 5. Contrary to those scriptures and many other scriptures that say that things depend upon the will of God. Yes, He wants us to have faith. Yes, He wants us to pray. Yes, He wants us to plead with Him. But we have to uh, leave it all into the hands of God. We have to be resolved to leave it all up to God. If God wills, then it will happen. If He doesn't will, it will not happen. And though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him. Whether or not He delivers us from the fire, we're not going to bow down to your image. O Nebuchadnezzar, or O king, we're not going to bow down. We're going to do the will of God and let God decide whatever He wants to do for us, whether He lets us live or not, whether He lets us have much or little, whatever it is, it depends on God. Something else that comes out of this passage is some false teachers, especially the Catholics, Roman Catholics, have said about this passage that this is an example of how we're supposed to go show ourselves to the priest in confession, this annual confession, this anonymous confession of our sins, they say we should go to a Catholic priest and then we're supposed to divulge everything and then he's supposed to listen and pronounce forgiveness on us. That's not what's going on here. In this case, he's already forgiven, he's already cleansed, and he's going to the priest with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. He's not going to the priest to confess his sins. He's going for thanksgiving. And nowhere does this or any other passage of the Bible intimate to us that we need to go to a specific priest or pastor, minister, clergyman, and confess our sins in some secret way annually or however often in order for us to be forgiven or to be assured that we are forgiven? No. We need to pray specifically to Christ, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, five. There's only one mediator, and we should pray to Christ. He's our great high priest. Let's pray to him and ask him to forgive us of our sins. John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus said about himself. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's where we need to go. Okay, and then lastly in verses fifteen and sixteen, we we run and keep very busy lives. It's very easy for us to be trapped up in this kind of living. We're so busy with doing this or that, that we make no time to pray, no time to read the Bible. We don't do this. And we think we're okay. We think that if we nibble on the Word of God, nibble on prayer, then we're going to be satisfied, spiritually satisfied, and we'll have spiritual health. That's what we think. I'll take a little bit of spirituality, I'll take a little bit of religion, I'll take a little bit of Christianity, just scratch the surface, and that's enough for me. You know, I, I'm not going to be a fanatic. I'm not going to be somebody who's crazy and a madman about religion. I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do it a little bit, and, and that's all. Otherwise, I'm going to be busy with all my activities. I'm going to be busy with all of my work. I'm going to be busy with whatever uh, things I want to do, and just give God a little bit of time. No, that's not what it says. He was busy with the things of God, But it says, he would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man is one who meditates on the word of God day and night. Day and night. And it says in Psalm 119 in several places, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I seek your word. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. He's thinking about God and the things of God all the time. When he's awake at night, for whatever reason, he's thinking about God and praying and prays himself to sleep probably. And then throughout the day, seven times a day, I do it all, all day long, thinking about God and the things of God That's what Jesus did. And he modeled that for us. It's not as though it's unique to Christ. The Bible teaches us to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 To be that way. Whenever a problem arises, whenever there's a decision, whenever there's a crossroads, whenever you you need to um, help somebody in need, whenever you hear of a need, that's what should trigger our minds to pray and to seek what the will of God is from the Word of God for that situation. And if we don't know, go find out. And these days, there should be no excuse. We have smartphones and we have the internet and we have computers. You can find what the Bible says on any subject within just a few seconds. So, why not consult God? Find out what the Word of God says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Lord, we pray that you'll teach us To be this way, teach us to follow Christ, to acknowledge our sin, for us to be used of you in ministry, for us to know exactly that um, you alone, are. if you are willing, then things will happen in our life. Yet, Lord, we do need to pray, and we do need to have faith. So, Lord, transform us and work in us, and grant us your spirit of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.